Well, if you've got your Bibles, Luke chapter 7. Uh, I've been looking forward to this passage of Scripture. It's a really interesting conversation that we get to take a look at today. An important transition also as we're making our way through Luke's gospel, coming to chapter 7. Uh, in many ways, what Luke does in this section, this important conversation, is he ties up many of the themes that we've been looking at so far in this gospel. And he's going to do that. It's actually a, a kind of a writerly move. He's going to come back to one of the things he began with. We're going to come back to the story of John the Baptist. We haven't heard much about John or John's ministry since those beginning stories of his miraculous birth and his work in the wilderness, baptizing and calling for the repentance of sin, baptizing Jesus. But Luke now brings us back to the story of John the Baptist, connects John and Jesus at this particular moment. And in doing so, he gives us an opportunity to reflect on much of what has been happening in the meantime in Jesus's ministry in these early days. It's something writers will often do, start with something, progress a story, and then come back to it. And now we think about those themes in a much different way, having seen so much of this story unfolding. So that's what we're going to do this morning as well. Come back to this story of John the Baptist and use this really interesting conversation between John's disciples and Jesus to help us think through much of what we've been reflecting on in these previous weeks. I want to read it to you, a really interesting conversation, Luke chapter 7. I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. My Bible titles it, Messengers from John the Baptist. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowd concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way for you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. 
The son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. What a fascinating conversation to look at. Jesus, these disciples of John, his own disciples, that crowd gathered before him. I mentioned that this conversation would take us back to John. It does exactly that. We've not encountered John for quite some time since he had been baptizing and doing his prophetic work in the wilderness. We know from the other gospels, particularly Matthew, that John at this point found himself under arrest, imprisoned. John had dared to speak out publicly against the unlawful remarriage of Herod Antipas, who ruled Perea down by the Dead Sea and Galilee where Jesus was. Antipas had set his mind to marrying his brother Philip's wife, and so John the Baptist had spoken out against it as the law had forbidden that arrangement. And so it was, John found himself arrested by Antipas and placed in prison. If you remember from the previous chapters, John had become a popular figure, a popular prophetic preacher. People from all over the region of Judea as well as Jerusalem going out into the wilderness to hear him, to be baptized by him. And so it was, Herod Antipas became nervous about this great crowd-gathering prophet who had now turned his attention to him, the speaking against his marriage. John was arrested, thrown in jail, and sat there waiting what we know from the scriptures will ultimately be his death, his beheading. But in this moment, he finds himself there in that dungeon, the palace of Machaerus, down by the Dead Sea, some distance from Galilee, John, perhaps in some cell, thinking and reflecting on all that is played out between that moment of his baptizing Jesus, the one we talked about last week, who was so great, John saw himself unworthy to untie his sandals, the great crowds there before John, and now he finds himself most likely alone in a prison cell. At this moment, we have John sending messengers, probably because he's incarcerated, unable to go himself. He sends these two individuals to go and to inquire all the way to Galilee to ask about Jesus. Notice that John's disciples had reported all these things to him. That's also one of the things we've been seeing. Word, news about Jesus's ministry had been spreading all over Galilee and Judea. Word had probably come even to John in that prison cell about Jesus, about his teaching, about his miracles, about how his ministry had been growing and how he had been going about it. And so John, even in prison, has heard word about Jesus in Galilee. Luke draws a pretty interesting comparison with these two figures. Jesus and John. They are, after all, linked by their relation. We saw that early in Luke's gospel. And they are also linked by that story of their miraculous birth. Do you remember how central to Luke's gospel in the beginning these two stories were? Elizabeth and Mary, John and Jesus, these angelic messengers and miraculous births tied together. This culmination when John receives Jesus and baptizes him in the wilderness. They're two stories so deeply connected. But think about now this fuller comparison of these two figures, how their two lives and stories and ministries have unfolded. John had been leading his ministry mostly in Judea in the wilderness, drawing people out of cities like Bethlehem and Jerusalem, out into the desert, out into the wilderness to hear him preaching along the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. 
Jesus, by comparison, has spent his ministry so far in the little towns and villages of Galilee. Nice places. If you've ever been to Galilee, it's beautiful. These little towns set right on the coast, much greener than the wilderness and the barren landscape in which John had been preaching. John had been calling people to repentance for the forgiveness of sin and baptizing them in water to mark that repentance. But Jesus had been speaking the forgiveness of sin at healing those who were sick. Do you remember how concerned the Pharisees and scribes had been with how quickly and easily he forgave sins? Jesus asking, which is harder, to forgive this man's sin or to heal him? Do you remember the image of John himself? Camel hair clothes, that uncomfortable, unrefined cloth, eating locusts and honey, a kind of strange outcast figure, a voice crying out in the wilderness. But what about Jesus? The image we get of him in Galilee, particularly of those who oppose him, it comes up in this chapter, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's plucking grain on the Sabbath and rolling it open with his disciples. In John's gospel, his first miracle was turning water into wine at a banquet, a wedding. It doesn't take much for John, sitting in a prison, to begin wondering about Jesus's ministry. Jesus seems to have chosen a very different path for his work from the path that John had walked. And so it is John sends these messengers. Twice the question is repeated by John to them and then them to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, John has already recognized Jesus is the one to come. I was actually talking about this with my family this week and Will said, Come on, he baptized him and heard a voice from heaven say, this is my son. How could he not know that this was Jesus, the Messiah? But isn't there something profoundly human about this? Sitting in a jail, looking at all that is unfolding with Jesus's ministry compared to his own, there is a moment of confusion for John. Some are uncomfortable with this idea. The great prophet John and all of his boldness and clarity and conviction, his preaching against power and the abuse of authority and the corruption of leaders, calling people to be baptized, now suddenly finding himself conflicted with the question, the faltering of his own belief. It shouldn't surprise us, John is a prophet. And after all, some of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament find themselves in similar places preaching with unbelievable boldness and conviction, and then in the quietness and the stillness of their own inner life, overwhelmed, discouraged, wondering, perhaps faltering, questioning. And so it is John sends messengers to ask Jesus directly. What is at the center of John's question, in my opinion, is a question of expectation. John had an expectation about what Jesus' ministry would look like, how it would go, how it would build upon the work he was already doing. That question of expectation has actually been one of the central questions of these entire chapters of Luke that we've looked at thus far. Everyone has come to Jesus with certain expectations of what a Messiah should be and how they should act and what they should say and do. This was the issue of the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus, you don't act like or teach repentance the way we would expect a Messiah to. It's the question of his own friends and family in Nazareth. 
You don't do for us the miracles we would expect you to do. It is the frustration of the crowds as Jesus continually moves on and they rush to find him again, trying to grab hold of him to get some power, but not listening to what he's saying and finding themselves continually confused by his words. Jesus so often did not do what people around him expected them to do. And this becomes the temptation for John himself. John understood and expected and believed that Jesus was the Messiah. There's no question about that, particularly early in John's ministry. And the fact now he raises the question shows us how he was thinking about Jesus. Jesus was the one who was to come, that language of the Messiah. But John expected it to be a great revival, a Messiah coming with power and opposition to those who had it. He probably expected Jesus would take a similar position of asceticism, perhaps going out into the wilderness like he had and rejecting all of the places and people for that lone figure in the wilderness, that Jesus would charge his language with the same political attacks that John had, questioning the legitimacy of Herod Antipas and the rulers of Rome. But here's Jesus walking around to little towns, talking to out-of-the-way people, forgiving sins and healing and the crowds forming and John scratching his head saying, this has none of the epic, powerful, prophetic, apocalyptic kind of Messiah image that I expected it would have. There was a great bit of commentary I was reading this week from one of the writers who put it this way. The inference from John's preaching is that he expected something along the lines of the battle hymn of the Republic. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. The terrible swift sword that was to be laid at the root of the trees is turning out to be a terribly slow sword. The only trampling that was getting done was on John's head. He was one captive who had not been set free. Another commentator put it this way. John may have been embarrassed to have declared that the day of judgment and the avenging judge was soon to come, only to learn that the Messiah was far kinder and gentler than he had expected. Who knows fully what John was thinking, what he was feeling in that moment, but he certainly found his expectations to have not been met, and so a moment of confusion about what Jesus was doing and perhaps even stretched to the unimaginable, is Jesus actually the one? that John was waiting on. What you get of John is something that I think is pretty human. After all, Jesus may be the son of God. For all of his power and anointing, John was like one of us, a human. Can we be honest enough about the way our own expectations impact the way we look at Christ, think about Christ? It is, in my experience, almost universally true that most people think they know exactly what Jesus should do and would do if they were able to see him here and now. Most people, you don't even really have to be a Christian for this to be true, have pretty strong ideas about how they think Jesus would act, what he would say, who he would help, who he wouldn't. You and I do it too. We have all kinds of expectations, some from our own experience with him, some from perhaps our own reading of scriptures, and others, if we were honest, a whole lot of just what we would like to see happen to certain people and what we think would be good for us. Certainly, John had something of that mix in him as well, too. A clarity and a conviction, the word, 
having led him to Christ, but still something of that which is human in him, which complicated and made that trust and simple obedience hard when Christ didn't live up to the expectations that he carried with him. It's also interesting in this story that Jesus does not send back some belittling, condemning message to John. He doesn't scold him. John, you of little faith. How could you, the great prophet, have some question or doubt of this? Instead, Jesus commands John's messengers to return with testimony of what they have seen. He reminds them, what is actually going on? What you've seen is that the blind have been given sight, that the lame have been made to walk, that lepers are cleansed and the deaf made to hear, the dead raised, and perhaps most importantly, because he saves it till the last, the poor have good news preached to them. What Jesus is doing in this list is both capturing all of those things we've witnessed in these miracle stories before, but he's also mashing together the expectations of the prophet Isaiah. After all, these, many of them, the very words Jesus had begun his ministry with at Nazareth when he stood up and opened the Isaiah scroll and began to read that this was the day of the Lord that had come, the freedom for the captives. And so it is Jesus turns John's attention what he has seen, not what people are saying, not what his expectations are, not what even what the opposition is, but John, what have you seen? John is still in prison, and perhaps all of this comes down to the word of those disciples who returned to them, but they had seen it for themselves that very day, the miracles that Jesus had done before them. Then comes perhaps Jesus' most personal words to John and his disciples. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is perhaps the real drive, the point of what it is that Jesus would say to John in this moment. Important enough that Jesus would structure this alongside his beatitudes that he's given before in the sermon. Blessed are those who are not offended by Jesus. What is this offense that Jesus' disciples, that John, particularly in this moment of his failed expectations, is supposed to avoid? Well, we've seen plenty of this so far also in Luke's gospel. His hometown drove him out and tried to push him off a cliff, offended because he had not done enough miracles for them, had not given them what they expected. The crowds who frustratingly kept tracking him down but not listening or obeying, The scribes and Pharisees who disputed his interpretation of the law were taken aback by the way Jesus acted, offense after offense after offense that turned people away from Jesus. If you've been with us for a while, we did a whole series looking at this idea of offense in the Gospels. In the Jewish mind, that word offense had with it the image of a person stumbling or tripping over an obstacle. It's why the word is often translated to fall or to stumble. The image is of a blind person walking a path who is unable to see the stone, the rock that stands in their way, and tripping over it, finds themselves stumbling and falling. This, that stone, that object, that obstacle, the offense in their way. This too we've seen. In our story, there have been two ways that people respond to Jesus. Really, in the end, I think it's true of all of us. There are always just two ways in which we respond to Jesus. There is the way of humility that we've spent several of these weeks marveling at. Last week in the centurion, but so many of these passages before, 
Peter and Mary and Elizabeth. Jesus, I am unworthy. Let it be to me according to your word. Depart from me, for I am a sinner. Who am I that the Lord should come to me? We've seen these moments in which people encounter this obstacle of Christ in their path. And instead of tripping and falling, find themselves able to see something, aware of something, humbled by what they've encountered. In each of those stories, a person encounters that obstacle. Another way to say it is that something about Jesus is so unexpected to them that it wakes them up to a new reality, a new humility. But there's a second response we've been seeing in all of its various forms. People hit that obstacle of Christ and they stumble over it. They fall. They find themselves frustrated by their missed expectations. Their expectations not being met, Jesus becomes a barrier, a frustration, an obstacle. Some scratch their heads and walk away. Others determine to remove the obstacle and confront it with all of their own energy and power. But all of them find themselves offended by this obstacle in their path. So John the Baptist finds himself in a similar moment. Jesus, all of a sudden, an obstacle to his expectations. Encountering something of Jesus that stops him for a moment and makes him question his own expectations, that obstacle. And Jesus saying to him, blessed are those who are not offended by me. But when their expectations go unmet, find themselves somehow humbled enough by it to see something new. Jesus understands that what he is asking for is ultimately the humility to see something he had not expected. John's disciples leave and look at what Jesus says to the crowd. Verse 24, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Jesus is turning his attention to the crowd, but he's talking about John the Baptist. And notice the language of sight. What have you been looking for? What did you expect to see? What did you go out into the wilderness to find? Jesus was asking them about John, who John was. What was their expectation of John in the wilderness? Did they go out just to see reeds blowing in the wind in the wasteland? Did they go out to see the scenery of the wilderness? Did they go out to see an important person in fine clothing? Jesus says, of course not. You go looking for those things in palaces, not deserts. What they went to see was a great prophet. And Jesus acknowledges that that is exactly what they found in John one of the greatest prophets. John was cast in exactly the image you would expect of a prophet. And he went out into the wilderness and they found exactly what they were looking for, a great preacher baptizing, calling for repentance. In other words, you could say John met their expectations. John was exactly what you would expect to find in an Old Testament prophet declaring the word from the wilderness. But Jesus says this in a more interesting way. Verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. You found what you expected, a great prophet. But then Jesus says something that sounds so unexpected, it's hard the first few times you read this verse to make any sense out of it at all. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What a strange thing to say. John is the greatest of anyone ever born to a woman, the greatest prophet to have lived. But any who is the least, the smallest in the kingdom of God is greater than John. 
This whole image Jesus has been building is how great John is. But he suggests that any of them that is least in the kingdom, anyone before them in that crowd listening and perhaps confused by what all Jesus is trying to work towards in this conversation, the smallest of them who are in his kingdom is actually greater than the prophet John. Those who had been baptized by John seem to understand this word. Luke specifically tells us even the tax collectors among them. They had been baptized by John, remember why? For the repentance of sin. It was an acknowledgement that God was about to do something new and that they were preparing their hearts and lives to receive what John was preparing them for. That repentance was preparing them to receive the Messiah. That repentance was preparing them to receive Jesus. And so Jesus says to them, those who are least in the kingdom are greater than John, and they understand this. For those who are least, who have repented, who have prepared themselves, have received the very thing that John anticipated. But Luke also tells us that the Pharisees and the lawyers scoffed at this. It's actually pretty startling. They rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. In other words, they are those who have not repented, those who have not humbled themselves, those who have not prepared themselves by that word of John in the wilderness. And so when Christ stands before them, they do not possess the humility, the repentance to recognize what Christ is doing. And so they scoff with pride at this word. And they thus reject the purpose of God for them. They had not repented. And therefore they could not see the thing that Jesus was doing. That's the point Jesus is making to the crowd. What does it mean to be least in the kingdom of God? It means to be humble. It means to have yourself and your identity brought low. To be like those voices we've seen. Let it be to me according to your word. Who am I that the Lord should come to me? I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. Depart from me, I am a sinner. To those who could humble themselves in this kind of repentance, the coming of Jesus is obvious and clear. And their repentance makes them even greater than John, for they receive what John anticipated. But those who cannot repent, who have not repented, they stumble over this obstacle of Jesus and find him an offense confused, their expectations unmet, they reject him. All of this is set by Jesus' own quoting from Malachi chapter 3, one of the last words of the entire Old Testament. Luke, particularly interested in it in the way that he tells the birth stories at the beginning of his gospel. Malachi had prophesied, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, The Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire, a launderer's soap. They all thought that that refining fire, that coming scrubbing with a bar of soap, would look like the sort of judgment that it would be power and fire and judgment, a sword swung. What they didn't realize is it would be Jesus standing before them. Jesus in his humility. Jesus in his kindness and goodness. 
that what would be judged would be their own humility, their own repentance, their own ability to recognize them, not by their expectations being met, but by their hearts humbled enough to recognize they need him. Finally, Jesus lays it out this way, verse 31. What then shall I compare the people of this generation to? Why is it with the Son of God standing before them and John having prepared them by their word that they could now stumble over the very one that they've been waiting and anticipating for? Jesus says, we played the flute, but you didn't dance. We sang the dirge, we mourned, but you did not weep. John and Jesus, repent, you wouldn't receive, and you now can't. It's a fascinating last paragraph. If this doesn't sound like the human heart and perhaps even the own day we live in, well, I think it does pretty clearly. John ate no bread or wine and you said he had a demon. Jesus comes and eats, no, eats bread and drinks wine and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard. Well, which way is it? This happens today. You preach Jesus and some will say that's too judgmental. Others will say, I would like a little more fire and wrath with that preaching of Jesus. Thank you very much. They all reject him. Why? Because he doesn't meet their expectations of what they want him to be, what they want him to do. Why? Because they haven't repented and been humbled and recognized their need for him. Jesus closes with a theme that he has used before in his teaching. Verse 35. Here he says, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. We've seen it in other words like a good tree produces good fruit or the house that is built on a foundation will weather the storm. Jesus here compares wisdom to a parent. The proof of that parenting, that wisdom, is not just this particular moment or not even just the words that are spoken, but the lives of its descendants. That is the fruit that is produced, the foundation, the house that weathers the storm. What I'm saying will not be proven to you in this moment, Jesus says. You will stumble over it and do what you want with it. You'll see me and my words as just another evaluation of your expectations. But just as he had said to John's disciples, what have you seen? What is the fruit of Jesus before you? What will be that fruit of his disciples and followers as they live and carry on this message into the days to come? Wisdom is justified by all her children. I've been thinking a lot about that advice as perhaps something we all need in this particular moment today. Everyone in our day has an opinion about just about everything. And certainly we also have pretty strong expectations and opinions about Jesus, about Jesus's followers, about the church, about everything. We reason, we preach his word to the best of the ability that we can, certainly limited But like then, what is it that we ultimately have before us as well? It's not just a clever argument. It's not just some great sermon on a Sunday morning. What we ultimately have is the fruit, the life that flows out of trusting Jesus. This obstacle that we all encounter and choose whether to walk away rejecting and offended or in light of this obstacle to humble ourselves and listen, to see to receive and to wait and watch as it bears fruit. Not perhaps getting what we want right now the way we want it, our expectation, but over days and months and years and challenges, walking with Jesus. As Barry mentioned it in worship, through valleys that look like death, 
through unexpected pain and difficulty. But finding in those moments something within us that says, this is wisdom. This is a foundation. This is good fruit. I was reading this week a conversation C.S. Lewis recorded, an analogy that I think fits well. Lewis wrote, what you have made me see, answered the lady, woman he was in conversation with, is as plain as the sky, but I had never seen it before. Yet, it has happened every day. One goes into the forest to pick food, and already the thought of one fruit rather than another has grown up in one's mind. Then, maybe it be, one finds a different fruit, and not the one fruit thought of at first. One joy was expected, and yet another is given. But this I had never noticed before, that the very moment of the finding, there is in the mind a kind of thrusting back or setting aside. The picture of the fruit you have not found is still for a moment before you. And if you wished, if it were possible to wish, you could keep it there. You could send your soul after the good you had expected instead of turning to the good that you had got. You could refuse the real good. You could make the real fruit taste insepid by thinking only constantly of the other that you did not have. We encounter in Jesus perhaps something we had not expected. Choosing to follow Jesus, our life takes a path perhaps we had not expected. We come to moments, times, that were not what we had expected. And like John, perhaps sitting in that prison cell, we say, was this really the path I was supposed to be on? Are you really the one that we were waiting on or should we wait for another? And yet Jesus says, look, see. By humility and repentance, open your eyes to something that others are missing around you. Not what you had expected, but what has actually been given to you. What is it that we see? What is it that lets you look past your expectations? What is it that lets you see and hear things in Christ that perhaps a neighbor hearing the same words walks away simply shrugging? What keeps that obstacle, that stone you encounter from becoming a frustration, but instead, as Peter would later write, a foundation stone upon which a whole new life could be built? What makes Jesus a joke to one person? into another worth staking their entire life and identity and hope upon. I want to suggest to you it's humility. Who am I? I'm unworthy. I'm your servant. I'm a sinner. The heart that is prepared to receive Christ is the heart that has repented, that has been humbled, that recognizes that my expectations are not what matter most in this life. But to follow Christ is perhaps to lay down those expectations, to die to self, and to place myself on a path of his choosing alone. Be sure that against this, all of hell will fight against you. You know best, the world says. You do you. Look out for yourself. Follow your heart's desires. Chase your dreams. Whatever you do, do not pause to consider you might be wrong. Whatever you do, don't reconsider your expectations. You know best. You are right. Over and over. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. 
I wonder how many of us are pursuing the path of being least, of being smallest, of being most humbled in this kingdom. For they are the one that is greatest of all. What in the end was Jesus asking of John as he sent those messengers back to him? I want to suggest to you he wasn't asking anything at all. Nothing. But doing nothing sometimes feels like the hardest thing in the world. Trust me. Remember what you've seen. See the fruit. And though this path does not meet your expectations or feel like the one that you wanted to be on, can you trust me with this too? Can you stay the course, John? Jesus told John, I have preached good news to the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who are not offended by him, by this, by that call to trust and humility. I don't want to say to close, but I want to count myself as among those poor. I don't always do it well, and I don't always know what it means, but I want to be least in this kingdom of God. I want to be quiet enough and repentant enough and humble enough to not just fill this world with my own endless expectations, but to actually see the Savior that is before me, to follow him on the path of his choosing, though it may mean carrying my own cross to do so. That whatever I need most, whatever expectation is greatest, is not my own, but his. What the crowd could not do, what the Pharisees and scribes could not do, what his own friends and neighbors could not do, but what these strange and out of the way and insignificant people, Mary and Elizabeth and John and Peter and a random centurion thrown in, what they all got right, humility and repentance and receiving him. Would you join me in turning that to prayer? Heavenly Father, all of us in this room have expectations. I know I have them about myself and my family and my career and my bank account and politics and the world around me. God, we have opinions and ideas and so many expectations about how we expect things to go. And yet we see in your word, that it is those who are able to humble themselves and quiet that noise within our hearts that are able to receive things from you better than those. So we pray this morning that by your spirit, you would help us to do it. Whatever stress or anxiety or expectation we've carried in with us this morning, whatever fear or uncertainty, God, we know those things are real. We know we live in the midst of them. We know that closing our eyes doesn't make them go away, but you've promised us something else. That you would preach good news to the poor. That you would lead us and guide us. That the blind would see. The deaf would hear. That the sick would be raised. So we choose in the midst of all of those expectations to again humble ourselves. To recognize that our greatest need is you that our greatest need is enough humility to follow you, that when we encounter in this life obstacles, that we might recognize that even in them, you are guiding us towards something better. God, we're thankful that you give us these stories like John, 
that you're compassionate enough to recognize the way we struggle in this world, the way we doubt and fear. And yet, even in those moments, you send to us good news. You make yourself known to us. You offer us this path of entrusting all things to you. So we do that again this morning. Of all that we've seen in these chapters that have come before, these lone figures who turn their lives and hearts to you in repentance and unworthiness. God, make us like them. Let it be to me according to your word. Who am I that the Lord should come to me? Depart from me, I am a sinner. I'm not worthy for you to come into my home. For you are greater than I. Unworthy even to untie your sandals. But yet as you say to the least of these belongs the kingdom of God. So we humble ourselves again this morning. We place ourselves there amongst your disciples in all humility. We give you our life and all of our expectations. And we choose again to follow you in all things. We worship you this morning. We worship you as a declaration of it, that you are our hope, that you are our security, our vision, our future. And in all things, we trust you. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. There's a place at the beginning of Luke's gospel in which you remember the story Zachariah received word that he would have a son born to him and Elizabeth late in life and shocked by it he ends up leaving the temple mute and unable to speak until the boy is born and upon his birth his giving of his name Zachariah's mouth is opened and he offers a prophecy of which the words end with this and you child speaking of John the Baptist will be called the prophet of the most high For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunshine shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. hope John remembered those words as he received the messengers back from Jesus, that his preparing the way for Jesus to come would mean light to those who sit in darkness, would mean salvation and mercy for those in the shadow of death, would mean a guide for our feet, not stumbling on every offensive, unexpected event of life, but a guide for our our feet into the way of peace. It's my prayer for us this morning, that whatever situation we might find ourselves again, that those words would ring true to us because of the tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunshine shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide us and our feet into the way of his peace. Can we trust him with all those things again? Heavenly Father, you are holy and you are good and your mercy is great and your compassion real before us. So we trust you. Whatever darkness, whatever shadow of death, whatever obstacle in our path, the 
that you will be to us light, the sun rising on us in your mercy, and that you will be to us a guide that we might not strike our foot or stumble and fall, but in this way of peace, we may follow you. So we trust you again this morning in all things. We humble ourselves again to follow you, that we might see you, and we receive again that promise that your good news has come to those who are poor, poor in spirit, poor in situation. God, perhaps just poor in faith this morning, that you come giving us good news and hope that you are before us and lead us in all things. So we trust you again this morning. We commit ourselves again to following you this morning. We find again that great compassion and mercy that we might leave here with hearts full, peace before us, gratitude in our hearts for having received you anew, for having seen you and sensed the way you lead us again this morning. We are grateful to know you and to have you, though unworthy we may be, that you have set yourself before us that we might follow you again. So we do it with gratitude and joy this morning. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. I leave us with those words from 2 Thessalonians, fitting for those final words of Zechariah's prophecy. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. All God's people said, amen. It's good to worship with you again this morning.